It's 7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast of America. Two, uh, let's see, two fifty. Okay, two fifty-nine. All right, it's just about to change. Don't be technical with me. It's three o'clock in the afternoon in London, Kyoto, Japan. Eleven o'clock at night, and here in Malaysia, as always, it's nineteen seventy-seven. Yes. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Woohoo! Really not. I never do. I haven't worn pants in over a year. <clears throat> Welcome. Welcome in. Luna Amethyst, a very happy belated birthday and a big kiss for you. A uh, happy birthday, Luna, and thank you for sticking with us and being the Gold Club member of the No Pants Weirdos. Appreciate that very much. Wherever you may be joining us tonight, live on Facebook, YouTube, slash J. Sheldon Malaysia. Please subscribe over there. We need the subscriptions. And Twitch.tv. And uh, all of our fans over on Twitch.tv, most of whom came to us through an amazing video game that is celebrating its one-year anniversary today, and that is No Straight Roads. Um, a fantastic game. If you haven't played it, you must. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a part of it. Uh, I do the voice of the character Cliff in No Straight Roads, who's getting a lot of love on Twitter lately, by the way. I've been trying to like all the... All the fan art that I find. Thank you for that, because Cliff is the forgotten character, you know. But uh, big happy anniversary to the whole gang at uh, No Straight Roads and all the fan base out there who is uh, who are just amazing. They are an incredible group of people, and I'm so happy to be a part of it and happy that you are friends of mine. You are indeed. Uh, I, I really mean that. I take that to heart. So, uh, more business. Let's see. Podcasters, podcast listeners, thank you very much. We're on all the platforms as a podcast. It's the audio-only version of the show. You can find that on uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, everywhere. Stitcher. We're all we're on all of those places. And thank you for the downloads and the listens. Appreciate that. If you want a little more than the audio portion of the program, you can always go to rumble.com slash jsheldonnopants, sign up, free account, everything there is free. It's just like YouTube, only better and no censorship. Uh, so uh, rumble.com slash jsheldonnopants is where you'll find our page with all the video episodes of our live stream shows from way back. This is our 105th episode. So, Wow. Uh, why am I not seeing your chats? Zook, Eve, May, DJ, Tatiana, of course. Uh, okay. You, yes, you did cosplay her and, uh, cosplay her and, and very well, I might say. I'm sorry, Luna, uh, your chats are not coming up in my multi-stream chat over here, so... I am, uh, yeah, Crystal Violin. Hey, welcome into the show. Thanks for popping by. 
Uh, I've drawn several characters, but my highlight is when I actually put work into drawing a different Sayu. <laughs> That's great. And nice to have you along. Thanks. And thank you for being a fan and a friend, more importantly, uh, for No Straight Roads and uh, all the gang over there. Very cool. Uh, all right. Yeah, see the multi-stream chat. I have, I have all the chats from YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch in a single display here. But for some reason, the ones from Twitch are not coming up. So if I miss, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, doing my best here to keep up with the times as much as I can. All right. Uh, we did the podcast. Oh, Patreon. Yes, please. If you can, it's a very small amount of money. It's in USD, but even if you're in Malaysia, the conversion rate's not so bad. We reduced our uh, our tier levels. You can actually help us support the show financially by going to patreon.com slash Sheldon. You'll find us there. Our lowest level is just to support the show and say thank you. Thank you. And uh, we have a second tier level in which you'll find all of our classic books that we read cut up into just the book sections and all organized by chapter and part. So you can listen to them like an audio book there. It's exclusive access to those of you who are on the second tier level. And the third tier level, I will actually do some voiceovers for you. Yes, I will. So that's uh, patreon.com slash Sheldon. Check that out over there. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, I got to switch back and forth between the chats here. It appears to be the only way. Jaden, hey, welcome in. Thank you, Jaden. Uh, sorry, I meant to say, uh, let's see. You want to drop in and say, thanks for voicing my favorite character in NSR. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. I think you broke my nose. Uh, you are entirely welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm Buff Cliff in the Discord. All right. <laughs> I will check that out. Uh, yeah, very cool. All right. Again, sorry about this chat thing. I don't know what's going on with, uh, with my software tonight, but that's all right. We'll get through it. We always do. Speaking of our classic books, we did Peter Rabbit. It was just a very short little book, very cute children's book we did in one episode last stream on uh, Monday night. Tonight, we start one of the most amazing stories ever. It is the original H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and we are going to read through all of that and do it chapter by chapter. If the chapters get too long, we'll probably break them up into part one, part two. But uh, yeah, it's a classic book. Uh, the films that have been done are several. Uh, the very famous Orson Welles radio program of The War of the Worlds, which scared half of the United States and put people into... Uh, put people into a, a tithy. If you don't know the story, look up Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Check that out. That was amazing. But uh, And of course, the uh, the other film, uh, more recently in the last few years, uh, War of the Worlds' Goliath, which was an amazing 3D animated film. I'm actually in that one. I do some of the voices for some of the minor characters in War of the Worlds' Goliath. So... Uh, you can check that out, too. But we will premiere the original War of the Worlds. We'll be reading that book tonight um, after we get through all of our other happy crap we've got to talk about here. 
All right. Um, Crystal says, uh, my favorites are Cliff, Zook, and Tati. Tatiana, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Hey, congratulations and a big hi-ho and a tip of the hat to our Malaysian Olympic team uh, who are in Japan competing right now. And I know you're saying, what? They've all come home. The Olympics are over. Ah, they're not. The Paralympics are going on right now. And we have a team over there here from Malaysia. We are incredibly proud of those guys. And a big round of applause for all of our athletes. Uh, tomorrow, they will be competing in, uh, let's see, cycling, Mohammed Yusuf Hafizi, uh, Mohammed Hafiz Jamali, Nur Azlia Shafinas, Nurul Suhada in cycling, uh, Mohammed Nur Saifal in swimming, Chi Chaoming in table tennis, and those folks will all be competing starting tomorrow and we certainly wanted to take a few moments and wish them all the very best here are if you're watching on rumble or on our live stream you can see their uh their pictures up there now and we uh wow they're entered into a lot of different uh a lot of different categories here in uh, there's mohammed nur saifel bin zulkafli in uh, swimming and uh, nur and nurul in cycling these are amazing athletes. Uh, there's Mohammed Hafiz bin Jamali. And again, looks like, uh, is that cycling? Yes, cycling also. And Chi Chaoming in table tennis. These guys and gals put in such an amazing amount of work and uh, they deserve all of our respect, all of our best wishes. And uh, we know you know what? I was going to say you will do us proud. You have already done us proud. Seriously. Uh, we could not be uh, be more proud of our Paralympic athletes who, who uh, do an amazing job. All right. Uh, moving on to some more weirdo stuff. And I got a ton of it tonight. I <laughs> it seems this week, for some reason, they've just, uh, you know, they've put up all the weird stuff online. So, um, oh, I know what I was going to do. Hang on one second. Don't go anywhere. Just a minute. Stay with me. It's, I forgot this. It's time. Miko Update. Miko update. <coughs> there she is. <clears throat> oh, by the way, you get some inside info tonight. You get to see my bedroom. I bought a new sheet set. There is nothing more comfortable or cooling as white cotton sheets and comforter and pillowcases. Here comes the girl. Yeah, that's right. Now I'm seeing your chats, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I put on this new bedsheet set that I just bought. Really comfortable, so cooling, so nice. And of course, I had to shut the door and lock Miko out because even when I stripped the bed to change the sheets, 
she goes nuts jumping on there and rubbing her face all around it and everything. So for a new set of sheets, she was not going to let me work in peace. So I got it all put on. I got it all set up. And then, of course, the queen took her place on her throne. And uh, yes, it is. They are very, very comfortable. They're a good thread, a thread count sheet. I got them at Lazada. They were very, very reasonably priced. So much so, and I love them so much, I bought another set. Um, but this is the latest Miko update. She decided she also loves them, so she took up her position, and uh, <laughs> there she is, enjoying herself before even I get a chance to enjoy myself on the new sheet set. So, yeah, good old Miko enjoying the sheets. <laughs> Oh, it's insane. All right. Speaking of insane, do you know what it takes to get committed to an asylum? Well, not much if we lived back in the 1800s. I found this list. It's incredible. And it, it is an actual list of the reasons people could be admitted to what at the time was called an insane asylum. From 1864 to 1889. Now this list is huge. It's, well, let me show you. Now I'll show you, if you're, if you're listening on the podcast, sorry, uh, go to rumble.com slash jsheldonnopants and you'll be able to see this. I'll, I'll give you just a few of them, but these are legit reasons why you could be committed to an insane asylum in the 1800s. You can, you can read along here, read ahead. Intemperance or business trouble, if that were the case with the, you know, house arrests and lockdowns, a whole lot of people would be committed. Uh, kicked in the head by a horse. Oh, I love this one. Hereditary predisposition. In other words, your grandfather was crazy, so you're probably crazy too. In you go. Ill treatment by your husband. Ill treatment by these days, he'd be in jail, not the asylum. Imaginary female trouble. Again, it's the mid-1800s, so they, they refer to it as female trouble. Hysteria. Immortal life. Laziness, the marriage of a son. How could the... Uh, masturbation and syphilis. Or mast <laughs> masturbation for 30 years. Now, I'm not going to touch that. Oh, did I just say that? Okay. Um, <laughs> medicine to prevent conception would be a reason. Parents were cousins? Well, in some cases, maybe. Tobacco and masturbation. They seem to be really hung up on masturbation here. Religious enthusiasm. Yay, rah, rah, go for the Lord, and bang, we're going to lock you up in the loony bin. I know loony bin's not politically correct. I don't give a crap. I'm not politically correct. So there, take political correct and spuff it up your dupa. Uh, domestic trouble, dropsy. What is dropsy? Never heard of that before. Excessive sexual abuse. Excitement as an officer. Exposure and quackery. 
fighting fire egotism. Yet just having an ego makes you insane. Yeah, <laughs> you really are reading ahead. Smallpox, snuff eating. Why would you, you know, snuff. Snuff is a stuff that you, you put it up your nose. It's like cocaine, but it's like a tobacco or something. Yeah, shooting of a daughter. Yeah, strangely specific, isn't it? Uh, woman trouble, superstition, smallpox. Why would you put someone in, in an asylum for smallpox? This is insane. Anyway, check this out. Um, I don't know what site this is from. A uh, Rue Morgue, R-U-E Morgue. You know, like where you go when you're dead, the morgue. It's insane. Hard study, rumor of a husband's murder. The Salvation Army, <laughs> self-abuse, false confinement, fell from a horse in war, oh, female disease. So here we go again, deranged masturbation, spinal irritation. Yeah, my back itches. So we're going we're gonna to throw me in an asylum. This is insane. This is unbelievable. What a what a we this was actually true. This was from 1864 to 1889. Legit reasons why you could wind up in a straitjacket. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right. Yes, yeah, seduction and disappointment. Oh my, if the walls could talk, huh? <laughs> okay. Uh, another one from Ranker. I, you know, I found this site a couple streams ago, and I thought this is rather cool. I know it's all clickbaity crap, but sometimes the clickbait stuff is still kind of cool. And people love lists, you know, top five reasons or top three, whatever, top 10 this, top 10 that. In fact, when they tell you how to make good thumbnails, they always say, make a list, top five, whatever, fill in the blank. So here we go. The top 12 times in history where things did not go exactly as they were planned. Some of these are hilarious. And this fits in with what we were just talking about. In 1887, a group of men added a woman named Susanna M. Salter to a mayoral ballot for people to vote as a joke. It was intended to humiliate women. She won. She won over 60% of the vote <laughs> and became America's first female mayor, Susanna M. Salter. Congratulations to you. Ha! How about that? Mm, let's see. World War I, the Germans disguised one of their ships as a British ship, the RMS Carmania and sent it out to ambush British vessels. In a hilariously bad stroke of luck, the first ship it encountered was the real RMS Camarina. And promptly, the Camarina sank, the fake one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> ah, this one's cool. 1959. Police, again, in 1959, there was still segregation. There were separate lunch counters, separate water fountains. And police were called to a segregated library. 
in Southern Calif- uh, Carolina, South Carolina, rather, a nine-year-old black boy refused to leave. He later got a Ph.D. in physics from MIT, died in 1986. One of the astronauts on board the space shuttle Challenger, the library that refused to lend him the books back in 1959, is now named after him. Ronald McNair became one of the first three African-American astronauts ever to go to space. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Here's one for you. In 1985, North Korea filmed a movie in Japan. It was a propaganda movie they filmed in Japan. And it was aimed at showing how the Koreans were living there were all very oppressed. But the message of the film backfired when North Korean audience saw the relatively luxurious living conditions in Japan. So that didn't work out so good, did it? (laughs) I'm telling you. Oh, those North Koreans, you got to love them. Hey, here's one a little close to home. This has to do with Indonesia. The KGB tried to blackmail Indonesian President Sukarno with videotapes of him having sex with Russian women disguised as flight attendants. He wasn't upset. In fact, he was so delighted, he actually asked to have more copies of the video to show the people back in his country. So, (laughs) ah, man, there's a lot wrong with them crazy Indonesians, but this ain't one of them. This is incredible. How about this? In 1918, again, things were not so good for the uh, African-Americans at that time. A black man named Lawrence C. Jones survived a lynching attempt from a white mob by convincing them of his passion to educate black kids. The mob ended up collecting money for his cause instead of lynching him. Now, that's a salesman I want on my team. Don't ask me why Bart Simpson is there, but an attempt to operate quickly. I've heard this story before, as a matter of fact. In 1847, Robert Liston performed an amputation in 25 seconds. 25 seconds. He operated so quickly that he accidentally amputated his assistant's fingers as well. (laughs) Both patient and assistant later died from sepsis and a spectacular spectacular, uh, oh, a spectator, reportedly also died of shock, resulting in the only known surgical procedure with a 300% mortality rate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, this is insane. Oh, how about this one? In Thailand, this is a long time ago, oh, 1880, in Thailand, it was considered a capital offense 
punishable by death if you touched the queen. This was 1880. The queen drowned when her royal boat capsized on the way to the palace. And if you are reading ahead, you know, yeah, or you can figure it out. The many witnesses to the accident did not dare touch the queen to try and save her while she was drowning because of that law. Consequently, she drowned. Scary stuff, man. Ah, these go on. We're going to wrap this up here. Let me give you one more. Uh, Troy Leon Gregg was a death row inmate in Georgia. The night before his execution, he escaped, only to be killed in a bar fight that very same night. Oh, man. If it wasn't for bad luck, I'm telling you. <laughs> Unbelievable. Go to ranker.com where you'll find all these. Yeah, in a bar fight, seriously. <laughs> you'll find all these weird lists over there. Man. Incredible. All right. I'm going to guess that a bunch of people in my audience, because I semi-know them, uh, are probably in their 20s. Maybe some teens in their 20s, 30-something, maybe. But this Reddit popped up, and it's actually a screenshot from a Reddit, where it's uh, a webpage called Reasoning Progressively. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Thought I'd share it with you. People who are 40 plus, that would be this guy. People who are 40 plus and happy with their life, nah, that would mostly be this guy. What is your advice to people in their 20s? Well, the answer that someone put here really does sum up, you're 16, seriously, wow, I had no idea. 16? I don't even remember when I, well, how, what it was, I was 16 in 1974. <laughs> oh, I should just die now. Oh my God. Do you know how long ago that was? A long time, all right? <laughs> anyway, somebody called Noise Barn answered, said, I'm 40 and this is my input and I love this. Everybody's focused on themselves to care too much about their opinion of you. So screw what they think. Social media is only an illusion. Boy, ain't that the truth. Zero debt is an amazing feeling. Think twice before you drop that down payment on that fully loaded 2020 dream mobile that offers nothing but looks and depreciates value very quickly. I used to sell cars. In between radio jobs was a time where I couldn't find another job in radio. So I sold cars. Did pretty damn good at it too. In fact, at the time, I sold Subarus, brand new Subarus and used cars. At the time, I had the East Coast record for the highest profit on any new car Subaru sales. 
I'll tell you that story another day, but it was a it was a white elephant of a car that nobody wanted, and I managed to actually sell it. <clears throat> um, but anyway, we in, in the car business, we have what's called the two-bump discount. When you buy a new car, if you drive it off the lot, brand new, just bought it, signed the papers, got the keys, drove the car off, and the two bumps are the front and back wheels going off the curb. Bump, bump. If you turned right around on the road and pulled back in, I could probably give you half the value of that car that you just paid for, for a trade-in. That's called the two-bump discount. You spend all that money on some car that depreciates, never appreciates, just so you can look good. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I know it does to you if you're in your 20s, but it doesn't. Falling out of love is perhaps more powerful than falling in love. Wow. Use up all your vacation time or sick time at work. Use it up. Trust me on this one. Don't lose sight of the hobbies you enjoyed as a child. They will help you live as you grow older. I'll tell you what, I know that's true because when I was in my teenage years, not really a child, but a teenager, was when I first got interested in bonsai and learned bonsai, had many trees growing up. And to this day, some 50 years later, I still do and have bonsai. It's a hobby I enjoyed as a child and I'm still doing it today. Um, family, I can't see the rest of this. Oh man, it just got even tinier. <laughs> family is not necessarily blood, but it's who you'd bleed for. Nice. There are just as much benefits to being a night owl as there are to being an early bird. True. And do not be a doormat in submission but hold the door open in kindness. Very nice. Very nice. So for those of you teenagers or 20-something-year-olds, take it from a 40-plus plus, plus year old. <laughs> those things are very true. Uh, all right. I think we got to save this for our next one. Yeah, we'll save both of these. Actually, you know what? I will add this one. Because it's good. 5,000 Facebook friends. 3,000 Twitter followers. 1.5 thousand WhatsApp friends. 2,000 Instagram followers. Still, outside the ICU, only his wife, his children, his parents, or his partner, for whom... He never had time to spend. Dear friends, move out of the imaginary world and spend some time with your family. Truer words, truer words. All right, we're going to save the rest of this for our next stream. There's some cool stuff here, but it's, it's all just this uh, internet crap. So there you go. All right, let me grab a swig of uh, of bug juice here. 
Mmm, that's good stuff. All right. It's time, my friends. I threatened you. I promised you. And now it's time to deliver. Tonight, we begin a brand new book, and I'm so excited about this. It is Orson Welles. <laughs> it is H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds. And... Uh, it is an amazing book. You're going to enjoy this, I'm sure. Um, it was first serialized back in 1897 in Pearson's Magazine in the UK and by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the US. The novel's first appearance in hardcover book form was in 1898, a year later. Just a quote from H.G. Wells from The War of the Worlds to get things started here. But who shall dwell in these worlds if they be inhabited? Are we or they lords of the world? And how are all things made for man? H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds. Book One, The Coming of the Martians, The Eve of the War. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves, and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarding this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. The planet Mars, I scarcely need remind the reader, revolves about the sun at the mean distance of 140 million miles. And the light and heat it receives from the sun is barely half of that received by this world. It must be, if the nebular hypothesis has any truth, older than our world, and long before this earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. 
the fact that it's scarcely one-seventh of the volume of the earth must have accelerated its cooling to the temperature at which life could begin. It has air and water and all that's necessary for the support of animated existence. Yet so vain is man, and so blinded by his vanity, that no writer up to the very end of the 19th century expressed any idea that intelligent life might have developed there far or indeed at all beyond its earthly level. Nor was it generally understood that since Mars is older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area and remoter from the sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from time's beginning, but nearer to its end. The secular cooling that must someday overtake our planet has already gone far indeed with our neighbor. Its physical condition is still largely a mystery, but we know now that even in its equatorial region, the midday temperatures barely approach that of our coldest winter. Its air is much more attenuated than ours. Its oceans have shrunk until they cover a third of its surface. And as its slow seasons change, huge snow caps gather and melt about either pole and periodically inundate its temperate zones. That last stage of exhaustion, which is to us still incredibly remote, has become a present-day problem for the inhabitants of Mars. The immediate pressure of necessity has brightened their intellects, enlarged their powers, and hardened their hearts. And looking across space with instruments and intelligences such as we have scarcely dreamed of, they see, at its nearest distance, only 35 million of miles sunward of them a morning star of hope, our own warmer planet, green with vegetation and gray with water, and with a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility, with glimpses through its drifting cloud wisps of broad stretches of populous country and narrow navy-crowded seas. And we men, the creatures who inhabit this earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as the monkeys and lemurs are to us. The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this, too, is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone into its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry warfare sunward is, indeed, their only escape from the destruction that generation after generation creeps upon them. And before we judge them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence 
in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of 50 years? Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? The Martians seem to have calculated their descent with amazing subtlety. Their mathematical learning is evidently far in excess of ours, and to have carried out their preparations with a well-nigh perfect unanimity. Had our instruments permitted it, we might have seen the gathering trouble far back in the 19th century. Men like Schiaparelli watched the red planet. It is odd, by the by, that for countless centuries Mars has been the star of war, but failed to interpret the fluctuating appearances of the markings they mapped so well. All that time, the Martians must have been getting ready. During the opposition of 1894, a great light was seen on the illuminated part of the disk, first at the Lick Observatory, and then by Perotin of Nice, and then other observers. English readers heard of it first in the issue of Nature, dated August 2nd. I'm inclined to think that this blaze may have been the casting of the huge gun in the vast pit sunk into their planet, from which their shots were fired at us. Peculiar markings, as yet unexplained, were seen near the site of that outbreak during the next two oppositions. The storm burst upon us six years ago now, as Mars approached opposition. Lavelle of Java set the wires of the astronomical exchange palpitating with the amazing intelligence of a huge outbreak of incandescent gas upon the planet. It had occurred towards midnight of the 12th, and the spectroscope, to which he had once resorted, indicated a mass of flaming gas, chiefly hydrogen, moving with an enormous velocity towards this earth. This jet of fire had become invisible about a quarter past 12. He compared it to a colossal puff of flame, suddenly and violently squirting out of the planet, as flaming gases rush out of a gun. A singularity appropriate phrase, it proved. Yet the next day there was nothing of this in the papers except a little note in the Daily Telegraph, and the world went in ignorance of one of the gravest dangers that evers threatened the human race. I might not have heard of the eruption at all had I not met, not met Ogilvy, the well-known astronomer at Ottershaw. He was immensely excited at the news, and in the excess of his feelings invited me up to take a turn with him that night in the scrutiny of the Red Planet. In spite of all that happened since, I still remember that vigil very distinctly. The black and silent observatory, the shadowed lantern throwing a feeble glow upon the floor in the corner, the steady ticking of the clockwork of the telescope. The little slit in the roof, an oblong profundity with stardust streaked across it, 
Ogilvy moved about invisible but audible. Looking through the telescope, one saw a deep circle of blue and the little round planet swimming in the field. It seemed such a little thing, so bright and small and still, faintly marked with transverse stripes and slightly flattened from the perfect round. But so little it was, so silvery warm, a pin's head of light. It was as if it quivered, but really this was the telescope vibrating with the activity of the clockwork that kept the planet in view. And as I watched, the planet seemed to grow larger and smaller and to advance and recede. But that was simply that my eye was tired. Forty millions of miles it was from us. More than forty millions of miles of void. Few people realize the immensity of vacancy in which the dust of the material universe swims. Near it in the field, I remember, there were three faint points of light, three telescopic stars infinitely remote, and all around it was the unfathomable darkness of empty space. You know how that blackness looks on a frosty, starlit night? Well, in a telescope, it seems far more profound and invisible to me because it was so remote and small flying swiftly and steadily towards me across that incredible distance, drawing nearer every minute. So by many thousands of miles came the thing they were sending us, the thing that was to bring so much struggle and calamity and death to the earth. I never dreamed of it then as I watched. No one on earth dreamed of that unerring missile. That night, too, there was another jetting out of gas from the distant planet. I saw it, a reddish flash at the edge, the slightest projection of the outline, just as the chronometer struck midnight. And at that I told Ogilvy, and he took my place. The night was warm, and I was thirsty, and I went stretching my legs clumsily and feeling my way in the darkness to the little table where the siphon stood, while Ogilvy exclaimed at the streamer of gas that came out towards us. The night another invisible missile started on its way to the Earth from Mars, just a second or two under twenty-four hours after the first one. I remember how I sat on the table there in the blackness with patches of green and crimson swimming before my eyes. I... I wish I had a light to smoke by, little suspecting the meaning of the minute gleam I had seen and all that it would presently bring me. Ogilvy watched till one and then gave it up. And we lit the lantern and walked over to his house. Down below in the darkness were Ottershaw and Chertsey and all their hundreds of people sleeping in peace. He was full of speculation that night about the condition of Mars, scoffed at the vulgar idea of its having inhabitants who were signaling us. His idea was that meteorites might be falling in a heavy shower upon the planet, 
or that a huge volcanic explosion was in progress. He pointed out to me how unlikely it was that organic evolution had taken the same direction on two adjacent planets. The chances against anything manlike on Mars are a million to one, he said. Hundreds of observers saw the flame that night, and the night after about midnight, and again the night after, and so on for ten nights, a flame every night. Why the shot ceased after the tenth, no one on Earth has attempted to explain. It may be the gases of the firing caused the Martians inconvenience. Dense clouds of smoke or dust visible through a, tele a powerful telescope on Earth as little gray fluctuating patches spread through the clearness of the planet's atmosphere and obscured its more familiar features. Even the daily papers woke up to the disturbances at last, and popular notes appeared here and there and everywhere concerning the volcanoes on Mars, the stereo-comic periodical Punch, I remember, made a happy use of it in its political cartoon. And all suspected those missiles the Martians had fired at us drew earthward, rushing now at a pace of many miles a second, through the empty gulf of space, hour by hour and day by day, nearer and nearer. It seemed to me now almost incredibly wonderful that with that swift fate hanging over us, men could go about their petty concerns as they did. I remember how jubilant Markham was at securing a new photograph of the planet for the illustrated paper he edited in those days. People in these latter times scarcely realized the abundance and enterprise of our 19th century papers. For my own part, I was much occupied in learning to ride the bicycle and busy upon a series of papers discussing the probable developments of moral ideas as civilization progressed. One night... The first missile then could scarcely have been 10 million miles away. I went for a walk with my wife. It was starlight, and I explained the signs of the zodiac to her. It was... I pointed out Mars, a bright dot of light creeping zenithward, towards which so many telescopes were pointed. It was a warm night. Coming home, a party of excursionists from Chertsey or Islesworth passed us singing and playing music. There were lights in the upper windows of the houses as people went to bed. From the railway station in the distance came the sound of shunting trains, ringing and rumbling, softened almost into melody by the distance. My wife pointed out to me the brightest of the red, green, and yellow signal lights hanging in a framework against the sky. It seemed so safe and tranquil. And that's the end of Chapter One from H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Nice setup, huh? Coming up next stream, we'll do chapter two, which is called The Falling Star.
cool beans. Wow. Very cool. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. That was fun. I will see you again on, uh, let's see, this is Wednesday. So Saturday night, 10 o'clock Malaysian time, we will be back uh, live. And of course, you can listen to our podcast across all the podcast platforms. Just look for I'm Not Wearing Pants. Look for that logo. That'll be us. Thanks for all the downloads and the subscriptions. And if you'd like to watch the video playback of our show, you can do that. All of our episodes are there on uh, rumble.com slash jsheldonnopants. Subscribe there, please. Thank you very much for that. All right. Crystal, thank you. Have a nice night, too. And uh, you're eating oyster crackers because there's nothing for breakfast. I love oyster crackers. We don't have them here. I miss those. We used to have tomatoes, Campbell's tomato soup, and you put oyster crackers in it. Oh, what a taste memory that is. I can taste that right now. That was so good. Send me some oyster crackers, would you? <laughs> all right, folks. Thanks again for popping along for the ride. Thanks to all our no-pants weirdos, and uh, I'll see you Saturday night. I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants. Good night. Woo!